0: This recording has been produced by Christchurch Jerusalem. For more information, visit us at cmj-israel.org.
1: So, brothers and sisters, it's great to welcome everybody to Christchurch Jerusalem. Uh, Here we are uh, during the tail end of the season of Hanukkah. And uh, We're going to discuss this holiday, discuss some of the literature, and, uh, and discuss some of the themes that occur in the books of the Maccabees that underpin and uh, underscore some of the theology that is in the New Testament. The New Testament, obviously, is a book that does not develop from a vacuum, instead um, it uh, uh, it, it, it emerges from a world of the Second Temple period of which the books of the Maccabees, the story of the Maccabees, um, is well entrenched. So let us begin by, uh, by acknowledging the Lord's presence uh, amongst us as we study. Aaron, would you lead us in prayer? All right. Let us pray. Our Father, our King. We thank you for, again for bringing us to this time, this season of joys and festivities across the world. Father, be with uh, Aaron as he speaks tonight. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and mouths to speak what it is you speaking to us through your word, through the history of your people, and through your servants. All these things we ask to you, our Father, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. To God be the glory. Oh, brothers and sisters, happy Hanukkah. Here we are in a festival that's not in the Bible. Now, I know it is in the Bible in one line in the Gospel of John, which describes that Jesus goes to to Jerusalem during the Feast of Dedication. From that one verse and one verse only, could someone please describe to me what Hanukkah is all about? You can't do it because from that one verse in the Bible, there is absolutely no possible way to describe Hanukkah. And so we are encountering and engaging in a holiday and we seem to know all about it, yet the holiday that we celebrate is not found in the, in the Bible that uh, we read. So what other festivals occur in the, in the calendar that are like that? And what's the obvious one? Purim's in the Bible, per se. Purim. Purim is in the Bible because we have a book about it. Yeah? So we have Esther. Christmas people will argue and they'll say Christmas is not in the Bible and you go well sure the story is there in the gospels the actual festival sure no but just like hanukkah we uh, we uh, celebrate and add to a calendar things that occur that god does in time without actually having a book that describes it although of course there are books that describe it. So, before anybody reads any of these PDFs, <laughs> tell me about Hanukkah. What's Hanukkah about? What are we celebrating? And what, co- what initially comes to your head? The victory of the Maccabees. Victory of the Maccabees, correct.
0: The miracle of God.
1: Uh, we have a miracle of God, Rolina. What, to- what miracle are we talking about here?
0: that he made the oil last for the whole week instead of one holy day that was a provision.
1: Okay, so we have this miracle, miraculous event of oil. Now, if we have this, if God does a miracle and we have God intervene in human history, um, why would we certainly not keep the books in our Bible that talk about that story? Any ideas? Most of us would have no idea. God actually did something, and uh, surely we would want to preserve that material if we happen to have a holiday, but we end up not. We're in a very interesting position where we are celebrating a story. We are declaring a miracle, and yet we do not read the books that actually tell the story. They are in in two of the Bibles. Correct. Yes, uh, I'll I'll clarify the the canon in just a minute. Absolutely right, Mark, because I agree with you 100%. When people say uh, the Maccabees are not in the Bible, that's actually not true. It's just not in the Protestant Bible. It's in pretty much everybody else's Bible, just not in the Jewish or Protestant Bible. Uh, And so you are correct. Maccabees is in the Bible, just not in a Protestant Bible. Um, Maccabees, the, the, sorry, the Hanukkah is actually a minor holiday in Israel. I know Israelis love to celebrate it. Jewish people around the world love to celebrate it. Believers love to celebrate it, but it is actually a minor holiday in Israel. That is, it is not a rest day. The nation does not take a Sabbath rest on any of the days of the eight day festival. Um, Hanukkah has only become important in the modern period because of one thing. Does anyone know what it is? Christmas. Yes. It's become the Jewish Christmas. And uh, Christmas is popular. Christmas is attractive even to a secular world. The secular world loves to be able to sell you stuff because of Christmas. They love it. They love to create songs, literature, music, and sales, all based around a holiday that they don't even believe. And so we are we are currently in the midst of a post-biblical holiday with really bad traffic. So if you happen to be living here in Israel, traffic's now horrible. And uh, uh, and we'd like to thank the Maccabees for that. Um, it's It's mainly a business and cultural holiday. That's uh, what it's become. Um, People love to produce particular types of food, latkes, and more importantly now, donuts. (laughs) Donuts are now really taking the the flavor. Uh, They are becoming more and more unique, more and more elaborate, uh, more and more loaded with calories, more and more bad for you, but we will consume them because it's Hanukkah. Uh, the schools and the educational institutions do take holidays at this time, but really not because of Hanukkah, but because it's a nice time within a semester to take a break. To actually break up uh, student learning. Um, and and so basically the holiday is essentially deriving its meaning from the culture, which is the same actually that, that ends up coming uh, as Christmas. During this season, um, it's very common to go and see the chanukkiah, the little lights, outside of the house. So normally Shabbat lights are kept inside the house. Chanukah lights are actually put outside the house. They're not normally produced and, and maintained inside the house, unless they're very close uh, to a window so that everybody uh, can see it. Um, so has anybody actually read the books of the Maccabees. I know some of you here have. Anybody read them? Good on you, Mark. Anybody else?
0: Yeah, I've read them.
1: Good on you, Sharon.
0: Yeah, first,
1: first and parts of second. First, yes, first and second. Yeah, sometimes third and fourth are a little bit more um, esoteric. Uh, fourth is definitely philosophical. If you ever want to know what Jewish philosophy looks like, read Fourth Maccabees. That's that's classic Jewish philosophy. Um, and it's actually pretty good. Um, Okay, guys, for those that have actually read the Maccabees, Mm -hmm. what's not in the story? Now, I'll describe what is in the story. We have a priestly family uh, begin a revolution against a uh, essentially Mediterranean European superpower, and uh, they were very powerful at their day. And uh, they managed to actually succeed. Doesn't always go incredibly well. It takes takes quite a while. Many battles. Most of the family actually die, and uh, and uh, they succeed in overthrowing the the Greeks. They succeed in rededicating the temple on exactly the same day as it had been profaned by Antiochus Epiphanes by the Greek uh, ruler of the Seleucid Empire, and uh, and they engage in a brief resurgence of Israelite Jewish monarchy, independence. They create the um, Hasmonean or the Maccabean uh, monarchy. That's the story. What's not mentioned in the book of Maccabees, guys? The oil. Correct. There is no miracle of oil in the Maccabees. There is, in legend, when everyone says, tell me about the story of Hanukkah, everyone talks about the miracle of the oil. But when you actually read the books that describe the Maccabees, the miracle of the oil is not there. I will now read the prayer of Hanukkah that you have in the Jewish prayer book. I'm holding in front of me the standard Jewish prayer book. This is the Agadah israel prayer book the most common prayer book that there is in the entire jewish world in this prayer book there is only one prayer for hanukkah and it is found on page 415 there are no other prayers it is one single prayer which is rather telling i think in terms of its importance in jewish calendar it's become very important do not mistake what I just said. Come very important. But within the rabbinic world and within the prayer life of the Jewish people, it is not. So here is the prayer, the one prayer. And it says, and you only say this prayer when you light the first light of Chanukah. Now, normally in a Jewish tradition, you would light all uh, eight candles, and at each time you would say a little blessing, you bless the Lord, and uh, you sing some songs. But on the first night, there is a special prayer that you say. It's not very long, and it says, These lights we kindle in commemoration of the miracles, the acts of salvation, and the wonders which you have done uh, to our forefathers through the medium of your holy priests. Throughout the eight days of Hanukkah, these lights are sacred, nor are we permitted to make use of them, but simply to contemplate them to the end that we may thank your name for your miracles, your salvation and your wondrous acts. So what does that prayer say? and What does that prayer not say? Bernardo's right. There actually are no commandments in the Bible to light candles. Yep, this is actually a tradition which is added to, to the prayers. So the prayer commemorates and blesses the Lord for miracles, plural, doesn't define which ones. It blesses the Lord for his salvation, doesn't define which act. It blesses the Lord for the wonders that he has accomplished through priests, which is very interesting, not through oil. And, uh, and then it just talks about how great light is. That's it. The actual miracle of oil as we know it appears in the Talmud 600 years after the Maccabees. And, uh, and so what you find in the Talmud is the rabbis are adding a miracle and they are downplaying the military victory of the priests. Why are they doing that? Let's have a look. So now we begin our lecture. So I am sorry if I have just offended anybody by telling people that the miracle of the oil most likely didn't happen. It is not in the books that describe the event. It is not in the Jewish prayer that is prayed. It occurs only in the Talmud, so, so late in terms of literary history that you would have to be asking, why are they adding it? And so here we go. All right, so Chanukah. Hanukkah comes from the verb to dedicate or to inaugurate, and is also the same verb to teach. There are four books that bear the name huh? Maccabees, conveniently named one, two, three, four. Um, uh, most of them occur in Greek, although there are actually lots of uh, Syriac readings as well. They um, occur in the Septuagint, and so in the Septuagint Bible, which means that they are in the Greek Orthodox, They are in most Orthodox Bibles. They are in Catholic Bibles because the Catholic Bible translated. From the Septuagint into Latin, the Vulgate, uh, by Jerome. And because Maccabees were there, he translates them into there. First Maccabees most likely was originally in Hebrew. From an unknown author, we do not know who, who wrote it. It describes the history of the Maccabean family from about 175 to 134 BC. It deals with the military part of the story, the sword of the Maccabees. God is not mentioned in 1 Maccabees, just like the book of Esther. There is no God, there are no prayers, there is no angelic uh, um, intervention in, in any way, size, shape, or form. 2nd Maccabees seems to be um, a Greek abridged version of an original Hebrew. So it looks, the actual document we have is Greek, but it seems to be a, an abridged version of something else. Uh, And it adds lots of theological uh, interpolations inside of it, including praying for the dead, the theology of martyrdom, and how community offerings can actually get rid of your sin in the temple. And so you have uh, uh, intervening prayers by saints and heroes, and uh, creation uh, ex nihilo, they're they're very much concerned with God making the world out of nothing. And it changes the focus from the soul that defeated the Greeks through to prayers, fasting and repentance and lots of uh, assistance from angels and God. So the real enemy in Maccabees one are the Greeks, the Hellenizers and in the second Maccabees, the real enemy are Jewish Hellenizers. It becomes an internal debate. Third Maccabees. Uh, is actually in Greek, Armenian, and Moravian Brethren Bibles. There you go. There is actually a Protestant Bible out there with a the Maccabees in it. The Moravian Brethren. If anybody happens to be a member of that community, um, and Fourth Maccabees is in the Gregorian Orthodox Canon. Okay, and it's a very much a uh, philosophical uh, treatise. The uh, the. The rabbis and the sages, these, the later guys who decide what the canon is, they do not agree with the messianic theology that's in the Maccabees. So they don't include it in the canon of our Bible, and, uh, and yet they, continue, and yet they um, maintain the holiday, which is actually very interesting. So what happens to the Maccabees? The Maccabees begin well this um, priestly family, uh, overthrow the Greeks, rededicate the temple, and they begin well. However, they end poorly. They they, uh, take on upon an, an aspect of Messianic theology where they assumed that they were living in the Messianic age. They had overthrown a Greek empire, they had succeeded where no one had succeeded before. And they believed that they were living in the Messianic age, that they were actually bringing on the redemption. And so they set about to do just that. And, uh, and, they, and so the Maccabees um, then begin to expand Jewish territory. They cross over the Jordan and they subjugate the Idumean, uh, Edomite, Edomite, peoples. They force-convert three different nations, uh, including the Idumeans, which, which ends up leading to King Herod. King Herod's grandfather is, com- is force-converted uh, by, by Maccabean uh, uh, warriors, meaning that King Herod is actually Jewish, okay? Um, he might have Idumean blood, but his grandfather converted, which I means Yes, mean, yeah, I'll just mute that guy.
0: <laughs> Did I manage to do it? Hmm.
1: Sorry, guys. I was going to mute all again. All right. I muted everybody again. All right, so um, the Maccabees force-convert the the Idumeans, which means that uh, King Herod's grandfather is forced to become Jewish, which means his son is now Jewish, which means his grandson, King Herod, is most definitely Jewish. So while people might say Herod is not Jewish, he actually technically is. They also go into the north, into the Galilee, which is predominantly a Gentile region. That's why in the prophets it's called the Galilee of the Gentiles. And they force convert the Samaritan and a, and a large portion of the Gentile community there, and uh, uh, and and to to try and maintain law and order in the north, they then force move southern tribes north. They force locate some tribes, and thus you end up with the, the household of Jesus, which is uh, Judah. Judah should be living south. His family has actually been migrated north, and you end up with him uh, living in the north of the country. And that's how he gets up there. Uh, They also then change the priesthood. They begin to, instead of having the high priest be dynastic and, uh, and survive until death, he ends up becoming bought and sold, and in many of the priests, who are meant to be Cohens and Levites solely, because they themselves were uh, a tribe of priests, Kohanim, they uh, introduce non-Zedokite uh, priests, uh, which cause a reaction. And some of the priesthood become quite disgruntled, and they flee, and they flee the temple And many of them uh, run to the extremities of the society, including uh, Egypt in the north and the desert. And one such community is the Dead Sea community. So the Dead Sea Qumran community, which we call the Dead Sea sect or the Qumran uh, sect, the Dead Sea Scrolls people are disgruntled priests that have um, fled Maccabean injustice. And so by the time of Jesus... We have a world with a um, a false a, a, a set, part of the priesthood is false. The high priest is no longer dynastic, and hence, in the Gospels, we read the high priest that year was so and so. The high priest that year was so and so. Well, that shouldn't have happened because he should just be staying around until. Until he dies. And sometimes the Gospels can't even work out which one is high priest, whether it's Caiaphas or Ananias, because the, each year there seems to be a different one. The, the temple is corrupt, and so Jesus cleanses it. It has uh, become incredibly corrupt. Uh, people know it's corrupt, and people don't stop him because they know that something has, has, has occurred on that's come out quite bad. Uh, And so, and the the Maccabees begin an internal fight amongst themselves. And so, different Maccabean families are vying for priesthood, vying for kingship, and one family invites the Romans in. So, the Romans are invited by a Maccabean family to assist them in destroying another Maccabean family. The Romans invade and essentially decide. Let's just take over, and uh, and so the the while the Maccabees start well, they end poorly, um, and so the the and they also uh, kill quite a few Pharisees. So by the time you get to the rabbinical movement, which is deciding the canon, they've got a little bit of a grudge to bear, and so they they end up excluding. The Maccabees from our canon, but the holiday was already entrenched in the Jewish calendar. And so the, the, the festival of Chanukah was alive and well at the time of Jesus. And then later is given a new meaning, which is the uh, miracle of, of oil. And how did they decide it to become oil? I hear you ask. Good question. It's a play on words. Based, which is what rabbis love to do, the rabbinical community loves a play on words, and uh, the the real name of the Maccabees—that's their nickname, okay—the Hammerers. The real name is they are the Hashmonim, and the Shoresh of their name is Shemen, and Shemen is what is it in Hebrew? Hebrew speakers around? It's oil. Oil. (laughs) <laughs> Correct. And so that's where you got it. They said the Hashmonim, the oilers, the people of the oil, will give them a miracle of, of oil. And, uh, and that's where that, that came about. And so because we would have to ask ourselves, if God really did do a miracle of oil, why are we not including those books in our Bible? What right would we have? just to 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 throw aside something god had done in history um and then we wouldn't honestly we wouldn't but again just to remind us it is in the bible it's just not in protestant bibles most of them Mm -hmm. okay so how did we get to this stage. The whole story starts with Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great starts off really well. He actually, when he comes to Jerusalem, he doesn't uh, actually attack it. Instead, as he's coming to Jerusalem, some people, some rabbis come out of the uh, the city and they show him the the scroll of Daniel and they show him where he's in it. He's the goat that charges the ram in Daniel chapter 8 or 9. And uh, he's so impressed that he actually donates large sums of money and proceeds to uh, continue on to take over Persians. Um, Unfortunately, on his deathbed, he declares that his empire must go to the strongest of his four generals. Instead of naming a successor, he just says, give it to the strongest. Well, that just sets up uh, an internal fight which is exactly what these four generals do. And they tear apart his, his empire and they succeed in conquering each other uh, to the point where you end up with the Ptolemies uh, ruling Egypt and the Seleucids ruling the Mesopotamian area. Uh, the Ptolemies uh, set about building the Pharos the, the Lighthouse, which becomes one of the ancient wonders of the world, and the library in Alexandria, which has every book in the known world, including the Septuagint. And uh, the Seleucid kings, which were mainly based in in Syria, really wanted to uh, make their empire like the way Alexander had dreamed, be cosmopolitan, that is, everyone being a world citizen, um, so that everyone's identity wasn't determined by birth, but actually through education in Greek philosophy and adopting Greek customs. And so they they set about Hellenizing their portion uh, of the world. And so in in the Jewish world, you have uh, the rise of literacy thanks to the Greeks. Not everything from Greek is bad. What are some positive things from Greeks I hear you ask? Okay, my question to you. What are some positive things in the Greek world which the Jewish people and us appreciate? Any ideas? Education, yes, well done, uh, yes. The, they, they are the ones that, pr- that produce schools and the ideas of rabbis. Rabbis are not found in the Hebrew Bible. You don't have teachers and students. That's actually a Greek invention. Socrates and the gathering of, of students and, and, and parting of information and, uh, and educating people, and it became, yes, everybody loves them too. Um, but the Jewish people look at some of the Greek influences and they go, that's not a bad idea and they incorporate it. And so the Beit Midrash was a Greek idea. Now becomes part of the Jewish world. It's a positive thing. Teachers, rabbis, Mid, Greek the Gematria. idea. The Gematria, yes, the idea of looking at numbers, that things actually have more meaning than just the, 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 the literal uh, text. And so uh, uh, sciences, mathematics, that is incorporated in the Jewish tradition, and it's is embedded into, into Jewish thinking. Very possible. Uh, very positive. Discipleship. Very positive. Birthdays. Greek idea. What's another great thing which we all celebrate today in the modern world? Democracy. Democracy is a Greek invention. It's not a Hebrew Bible invention. As those of us who have been reading Deuteronomy, the only <laughs> form of government that, you, that appears in the Bible is which form? Kingship. Democracy. Yes, it's a uh, it's a it's a it's a monarchy, particularly God's monarchy. Um, but democracy comes in, and they love it. Architecture, the Greeks come through with some incredible ways of moving things around, like water, producing very good roads, building very good buildings and walls and capitals, and all of that is incorporated by the Jewish people. So much so that the temple. The the second temple, the one that uh, Yeshua walked around, is largely based on Roman Greek design. Okay, it's got the the shape that is that is given and dimensions according to the Jewish text, but a lot of the facades are uh, Corinthian capitals and and uh, and and Greek structures to be able to maintain the the sheer size. However, with some of this positive influence comes negative influence, and the negative influence is pretty bad. Western immorality has now arrived into the uh, into the Hebrew world. How do you resist? How do you possibly resist this um, very insidious immorality which appears? Um, they're not forcing you to worship their gods yet, but their immorality has arrived. And so you resist by education. You take the education model... And you begin to educate your people to defend against uh, immorality by by reading the scriptures. Now, once you begin to read the scriptures and you and you create a community that has literacy, what is the next thing you will create? Denominations. And so, in the Hebrew in the Hebrew Bible, we don't see denominations or sects very much. We see tribes. People have tribal affiliations. They, are, uh, uh, they have um, uh, a loyalty and a tie based on blood and kinship. Later in the second temple period, with the influx of Hellen, uh, Greek, Hellenism and Greek thinking and literacy, we begin to create communities based around how we theologically think. So now suddenly two people which come from different tribes might actually theologically think the same. And they can form a special group that goes beyond borders and nations and tribes and tongues. And so you end up creating groups. And so these groups appear in the Second Temple Period. The Essenes, Sadducees, Pharisees, Ebionites, uh, Herodians, Hellenists, um, the Hasidim, uh, the Haridim, all these different groups um, begin begin to appear. And all of that is what we see at the beginning of the New Testament. All these groups are well-developed, uh, well-entrenched, all figuring out how to interpret their little piece of Bible. And a lot of this is due to the world that uh, had been brought in by the Greeks and the reaction that came from the Maccabees. All right. So uh, let's start having a look at some of the texts. Oh, uh one more thing the The Maccabean heroes are a family, and uh, the first the father of this family of priests is a guy called Matthias. matthew marty and uh he he starts the rebellion uh against the Greeks and he's a descendant of uh of Pinchas and uh, who's Pinchas? I hear you ask Anyone know Phineas. the story of Pinchas Phineas. Yes. Well, it's the one that um, was zealous for God and um,
0: he pierced um, uh, two, two princes, one of the Israelites and one of the Moabites, and um, he became zealous and got the covenant
1: of uh, um, Shalom. Correct. God. So Pinchas or Phineas in our Bible, Pinchas in Hebrew, is a grandson of Aaron, And uh, he defends the honour of the Lord um, in a rather uh, violent act, which is commended by God and is actually given um, a a covenant, a covenant of peace. No one exactly knows 100% what that means, um, because the Bible doesn't describe what this covenant is, but it is an everlasting covenant God makes with his house. And, uh, And Pinchas has actually quite a bit of a career in the book of Joshua as well, which is He uh, he appears there quite a bit, Uh, and so there already was a fair bit of theology about being zealous for the Lord, and some of this zealousness zealousness could include violence, and uh, and so here we have these priests take up the mantle of Pinchas, and they become violent, and uh, and they overthrow the Greeks, Uh, and most of them actually die. Uh, Matthias uh, has five sons, uh, John. Simon, Shimon, Judas, Yehuda, Eliezer, and uh, John, Yochanan. And, uh, and these guys all uh, take part in, in the battle, uh, several of them actually uh, dying, several of them becoming high priests. Um, and these become so famous that uh, in the Second oh. Temple period, many people actually begin to name their sons after them. So half the disciples are actually named after Maccabean war heroes. Um, the other half happened to be named after Greeks, but the, the Hebrew ones often named after um, the Maccabean dudes. So Peter, Shimon, right? He's, he's named after them. Uh, Jesus' brother, Yehuda, okay, is, uh, is named after, after these kind of guys. Uh, Eliezer, very famous um, high priest later on, is named after one of the Maccabean kings. And uh, so it influences the, in, in, in people's uh, naming of their kids. Which uh, even occurs until until this day, um, most of the heroes do not survive the story okay. so let's read if you can click on the link first Maccabees the cleansing and dedication of the temple we're actually going to read the um, the story about how they did it and uh, so it's in uh, reading number one first Maccabees chapter four and starting at uh, Uh, Verse 52, it describes um, early in the morning of the 25th of the ninth month, which is the month of Kislev, in the 148th year, they rose and they offered sacrifice, as the law directs, on the new altar of burnt offerings that they had built, at the very season, on the very day that the Gentiles had profaned it. It was dedicated with songs and harps and loops and cymbals. Uh, All the people fell on their faces and they worshipped and they blessed heaven who had prospered them. So they celebrated the dedication of the altar for eight days and they joyfully offered burnt offerings. They offered a sacrifice of well-being and a thanksgiving offering. They decorated the front of the temple with golden crowns and small shields. They restored the gates and the chambers for the priests and they fitted them with doors. There was very great joy among the people, and the disgrace brought by the Gentiles was removed. And then Judas and his brothers and all the assembly of Israel determined that every year at that season, the days of dedication of the altar should be observed with joy and gladness for eight days, beginning with the 25th of the month of Kislev. So, what do we see that's uh, important there? Well, first of all, we don't see don't see a miracle of the oil. They describe a fair bit. They, um, uh, Rory says, "Which verse is that?" Okay, so we're looking at uh, reading uh, Maccabees, reading number one, reading First Maccabees, chapter four, uh, verses fifty-two to fifty-nine. Okay, so that uh, that reading. Um, we discover that they start an eight-day festival. In fact, most Jewish um, Jewish uh, uh, holidays are eight days, and, uh, and they have songs and, and all that kind of stuff. What they do is they, they rededicate the temple on the same day that it was profaned, the 25th. What other special holiday occurs on the 25th? I hear you ask. What is it? Yes, it's Christmas. And if you Google Christmas, then most likely you will get a website or somebody will say uh, Christmas is based on a pagan holiday and this, that, and the other. And, and you go, oh, okay. And people believe it, except that it's actually based on the 25th that comes from the Maccabees. That's where that special day came from. The winter solstice is on the 21st, and uh, so people sometimes say that, the, that Christmas is attempting to cancel a pagan holiday, but if we do, we're kind of missing it by about four days, and really, it doesn't explain why the Greeks, Orthodox, the 400 million other Christians celebrate their holiday for Christmas on the 6th of January, which is nowhere near the, uh, the, the winter solstice. The, the, in, in Jewish tradition, the 25th of Kislev in the winter month became very, very important. And, uh, and why did it become important? Because it's nine months from Passover, okay. uh, which is going to become key. They celebrated, they rededicated the temple on the same day it was profaned which is a very Jewish tradition. In Jewish tradition and theology, um, beginnings and ends always occur on the same day, in the same fashion, uh, in the same uh, format. So Eve eats the fruit on Passover. A virgin hears the voice of God and disobeys at Passover. According to Jewish Christian tradition, when did Mary get the visitation by Gabriel? Passover. Why is Passover so important? Because that's the birthday for Isaac. Um, Adam is created by the dust of the Temple Mountain. And, uh, and so when he's buried, where is he buried? Back in Jerusalem, in the same place where he is, is, uh, is created and born. Uh, all of these kinds of things um, occur so much. So the 25th becomes important because the Maccabees made it important. Uh, and uh, that's where that day comes from. However, the first Maccabees, when they're dis- discussing the temple and how they're re- uh, getting rid of all the bad guys, there is no miracle of, uh, of the oil. Okay. But what is in there? The first book of Maccabees is uh, very military. It's um, uh, full of great battles. Doesn't mention God, just like the Book of Esther. Um, really does is, is dictated to quite heavy nationalism, and so most people think that it was. Um, most scholars assume, and it's an assumption, that it was written inside the land by by a nationalistic uh, Jewish person. Second Maccabees was written outside the land. Again, this is an assumption. Uh, based on its uh, current form of Greek and its heavy influence of theology that is the addition of God and prayers and angels and all that kind of stuff and and really focuses more on theology and less on nationalism Uh, and it's very interesting that that's uh, that same sort of theology and feeling is, is 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 cropping up in modern Israel today if you're in Israel today then it's Who's defeating the bad guys? Who's beating all the Arabs? It's us. It's our IDF. And when you're outside the land of Israel, what do we say? Who's defending Israel? We say it's God. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Outside the land, people are thinking more theologically. Inside the land, people are thinking more nationalistically. So it's a very interesting phenomenon, and it hasn't changed that much uh, over time. Okay. All right. Uh, yes. So Bernardo is mentioning that the first chapter tells us why they desecrated the temple. Absolutely, they desecrate the temple on the twenty fifth, um, and they sacrificed a pig to Zeus. Yes, this is definitely pagan, absolutely, and it becomes and be, and the whole temple becomes uh, uh, unholy. And so then, when it's rededicated, when it's Hanukkah, okay, that's the the meaning of the name. Uh, the Feast of Dedication, they, um, they, it, it occurs on the same day and it gets rid of uh, all the profanity, all the abomination of desolation that had happened before. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And so the 25th becomes quite, quite good. Pagan becomes good. All right. Okay. So um, let's have a look at some of the theology that occurs in the second Maccabees. So we have a story about our heroes, which overthrow the Greeks, and uh, and and we begin to purge um, parts of uh, of Israel from paganism, although not one hundred percent. And then they begin to begin to look at that event and the messianism that occurs with it, and uh, and uh, uh, and in the Second Temple period. Um, Jewish people felt quite free to um, to examine the scriptures and, be, and and interpret them and interpret them uh, by by um, by by literally asking any question that they could think of. Why why is this word used? Why is this word not used? Why is this got a capital or, or etc. cetera et cetera? Um, And so, Second Maccabees has a, has another take at the story. But by but brings in lots of second Tem- of late second temple period theology. And uh, let's begin by um, having a look at Second Maccabees. So this will be reading uh, Maccabees, reading number two. Okay. Uh, has everyone got it? Second Maccabees twelve. Do you have that piece of paper? Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna read 2 Maccabees twelve. And I'm gonna read um, verses uh, thirty six, uh, sorry thirty eight to forty five. So, in the book of Maccabees, in the books of the Maccabees, there are a variety of battles. Some they win, some they lose, and um, this is going to be a, an account of one that they lose, and of course they need to start asking the question, what happens when we lose? Because in the, in the late Second Temple period, with the influx of, of Hellenism and Greek thought, some positive, some negative, on the negative side, you had people attempting to um, bring their gods and force their cosmopolitanism on top of you. In the in the first temple period, we were punished if we had done things bad, like Avodah Zarah or idol worship or something like that. In the second temple period, we're being punished because we're good. In the first temple period, we're punished because we're bad. We get it. We're bad. We get punished. We make a golden cow. We die. We, we rebel against the Lord. Snakes come and bite us. We get it. We do something bad, the Babylonians come. We get it. But now we're being good. Now we have come back from Babylon, we're being good Jews, but yet the Greeks are oppressing us and they're, and they're causing us to do all kinds of horrible things. How do we theologically reevaluate being punished for doing good? And so you have to really have a hard look at, uh, at that world. And that's the world of the 2nd Maccabees. They're, they're trying to come to a theological understanding. What does it mean to be being, what does it mean when good when bad things happen to good people? And so in um cha- in chapter 12 of 2nd Maccabees 38, we read, Then Judas assembles his army uh, west, uh, and went to the city of Adulam. As the seventh day was coming, they purified themselves according to the custom and kept the Sabbath there. So they had a mikveh. They, they mikvehed themselves. They probably had a Shabbat dinner. They, um, and they began to rest on the Sabbath. They were not going to fight. On the next day, now it's a Sunday, as, they, as, had, as had now become necessary, Judas and his men went to take up the bodies of the fallen. So they, they had come across a battle where the Jews had lost. And to bring them back to lie with their kindred in the sepulchres of their ancestors. So they're they're burying people uh, in, in tombs. And we have those tombs all over Israel, which you can come and visit. Then under the tunic of each one of the dead, they found sacred tokens of the idols of Jamnia, which the law forbids the Jews to wear. And it became clear to all that this was the reason these men had fallen. So... They had come across a field where the Greeks and the Jews had battled. The Jewish people had lost. They had a Sabbath. They purified themselves. The next day they set about to bury the dead, which is a good thing. As they're burying the dead, they discover that many of the dead soldiers carried idols with them. Idols are not major big statues. They're actually very small things, small tokens that people carry around uh, on their person. It's like good luck charms. Uh, Verse 41. So they all blessed the ways of the Lord the righteous judge who reveals the things that are hidden, right? Eventually all things come to light and they turned to supplication. They prayed that the sin that had been committed might be wholly blotted out. The noble Judas exhorted the people to keep themselves free from sin for they had seen with their own eyes what had happened as the result of the sin of those who had fallen. He also took up a collection man by man, to the amount of 2,000 drachmas of silver and sent it to Jerusalem to provide a sin offering. In doing this, he acted very well and honorably, taking an account of the resurrection. For if he were not expecting that those who had fallen would rise again, it would have been superfluous and foolish to pray for the dead. But if he was looking to the splendid reward that is laid up for those who fall asleep in godliness, it was a holy and pious thought. Therefore, he made atonement for the dead so that they might be delivered from their sin. Wow, what have we just read? Remember, this is second Maccabees. This is not. There are no Christians. We are. Uh, we cannot blame this on some Christian monk in the third century living in a desert um, after eating too much mushrooms. Okay, this is a this is Jewish late Second Temple period Jewish thought. In the Second Temple period, they believed that the world to come could influence this world. Okay, angels could come and visit. In fact, in the Book of Maccabees, Judas gets a magical sword from. Uh, from Jeremiah, we might even read that bit, I think I've actually included it here. For those of you who come from Great Britain, what, what great story do you have of, uh, of some mythical hero getting a sword from, from somewhere? King Arthur, Arthur. okay. Well, the Maccabees has it hundreds of years before the British ever do, okay? So good old Judah's running around hitting everybody with a hammer and some angel decides, well, this is a really dumb idea. Quick, let's give him magical sword. So they come and they give him a a golden sword and they say, use this. And then he uses that uh, to go and slay the Greeks. It's fantastic. And so, yes, Alison, I see in the chat, you are correct. Did Jewish people believe in purgatory? Well, I wouldn't call it purgatory. That's the Greek uh, term. But, yes, something like that. They believed that the world to come could influence this world. Angels could come. They could assist you. Uh, Angels assisted Yeshua when he was in the desert, yes. So the, 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 the next world can influence us. But they also began to believe that this world could influence the next world. And uh, and so they 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 began to so they could say that they could pray uh, for dead people. They could offer sacrifices for the sins of the fallen because they believed that the fallen would eventually resurrect. And so uh, and this is this maybe explains that very obscure verse that we find in Corinthians, where Paul says, "You baptize for the dead." And most of us wish Paul had never said that. We all wish that we could just, you know, blot that one out of Corinthians and throw it away because none of us understand what it means. But let's put it into its Second Temple period context. They believed that uh, that this world could influence the next one, and so here you find Judah uh, taking up a collection for um, for the, the paying for the sins. Of other people. So I want to do this. Do not blame the Catholics for creating purgatory. It's not their fault. They have the book of Maccabees in their Bible. So when they read it, what do you think they're going to come up with? Okay. Um, It's not a Catholic invention. It's a second temple period invention. And uh, the New Testament has some things to say about that. Okay, it says that that does not work, okay? But, um, but, but you can see that in the second temple, in, in, in the New Testament, a lot of their theology is going to say, I know what you think, I know what you've heard written, but this is actually how it is. And so it's not that your blood, you, you, can, you can't pay for the sins of, of, uh, of the fallen. There will be a judgment. Everyone will be resurrected and, 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 and face a judgment. And so in the second temple period, they believe that, but here you find uh, for Judas that uh, and, and for the Maccabean people and for a lot of Jewish people, they honestly believed that they could affect the world to come. And so in many traditions in the Christian world, they are still following this tradition and they get it from here. So we shouldn't throw stones at them. We should just talk calmly, politely, discussing okay but but let's not uh get angry and start going oh my gosh you know you're praying for dead people how dare you that's not in the bible well it is it's just not in your bible okay uh what's another good one okay um martyrdom okay this is uh the uh, the concept of dying for other people now, in the Bible, it's very clear in the book of Deuteronomy, for those of us who are studying uh, Deuteronomy, we're about to get to it. It's in chapter 24. Uh, Moses, and, and, and so God through Moses, is going to say that everyone will die for his own sins. You cannot die for the sins of someone else, even though Moses has already tried. Okay? He's tried in, in Exodus when, when, when the Jewish people had... Um, uh, Sinned with the golden cow, and God was going to wipe them out. Moses is there interceding for them, like a really good mediator. The, the whole image of the of the high priest mediator we get from this guy. He's saying, "No, no, take me, okay? leave them, it, it, wipe me out, but but you know, honor your name and, and keep them." And God's like, no, 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 I'm going to keep you and I'm going to wipe them out. And then there's this, this nice dialogue uh, that Moses actually intercedes and no one gets wiped out. Well, a few people die, but not the actual uh, people. So there is a little bit, but, not, but it's not accepted by the Lord in, 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 um, in Exodus and in Deuteronomy. It gets no one, everyone dies for your own sins. No one can die for anybody else's sins. And so this... Is one of the major arguments by Jewish people against the Messianic faith, and uh, for for those who, who are who follow uh, my newsletters, or for those of us who have been studying together on Wednesdays, we know that there's this uh, uh, lovely Chabad boy called Mordecai. Um, I've been studying with him for the last couple of months and, uh, and he asked, point blank, but it says you can't die for the sins of somebody else. So where does this concept come from? And, and it comes from, you guessed it, the Maccabees. It comes from the Second Temple Period world where they were looking at a world where good, ba- bad things were happening to good people and they were trying to come up with a theological reason why that was. And so, um, <clears throat> let's read. Okay, all right. We will actually read chapter seventeen of Fourth Maccabees. Okay, uh, so it's it's on reading two. Fourth Maccabees is a very um, philosophical book. It's Jewish philosophy of the Second Temple period. That is, they are incorporating parts of the philosophical world that they've seen from the Greeks, and they're putting it into their Jewish context and, uh, and analysing uh, such thoughts as um, why do bad things happen to good people? Uh, where do you go when you die? Um, is that the end? Can we affect the other world? These, these kinds of ideas. Uh, and so here we go. This is a story of uh, their take of a mother and her sons who will... Um, uh, they all die, uh, unfortunately, unfortunately. Um, and they all die horrible deaths in front of each other, but none of them renounce their faith. And in 2 Maccabees, it's, it's, a, it's an entire chapter about a mother and her seven sons. And in 4 Maccabees, they add a theological twist to it. Okay, so let's read um, 4 Maccabees chapter 17 and, um, and starting at verse 7. So the scenario is, the Greeks are doing their best to make people convert to Hellenism. The Jewish people are reacting, some violently, some passively. The passive ones are put to death, violent deaths. They are martyred. And what effect does this martyrdom have? Is it affectatious at all? Should they not just eat the bacon sandwich, and then quickly convert back to Judaism later. You know, these kinds of of thoughts. Okay, so here we go. This is their their philosophical take on it. The effect of the martyrdoms is the heading. Verse 7, if it were possible for us to paint the history of your religion as an artist might, would not those who first beheld it have shuddered as they saw the mother of the seven children enduring their varied tortures to death For the sake of religion. So she had to watch each of her children. One at a time. Be be horribly killed. Indeed it would be proper to inscribe on their tomb. These words as a reminder of the people of our nation. Here lied an ancient. An aged priest and an aged woman. And seven sons. Because of the violence of the tyrant. Who wished to destroy the way of the life of the Hebrews. They vindicated their nation. Looking to God and enduring torture even to death. Truly, the contest in which they were engaged was divine. So you know how Paul talked about running a race, and he uses that kind of metaphor? They, he, this guy is already talking about it. It's a, it's a contest. It's a, it's a, Greek, It's a Greek play. Truly, the contest in which they were engaged was divine. For on that day, virtue gave the awards and tested them for their endurance. The prize was immortality in endless life. Eliezer was the first contestant. The mother of the seven sons entered the competition, and the brothers contended. The tyrant was the antagonist, and the world and the human race were the spectators. I mean, this is good Greek, gripping stuff. Okay? You don't find this type of literature in the Hebrew Bible, but this is written by Jewish people using Greek style. Okay? reverence for God was the victor and gave the crown to its own athletes who did not admire the athletes of the divine legislation who was not amazed the tyrant himself and all his council marveled at their endurance because of which they now stand before the divine throne and they live the life of the eternal blessedness for Moses says all who are consecrated are under your hands these then, who have been consecrated for the sake of God, are honoured, not only with this honour, but also by the fact that because of them our enemies did not rule over our nation. The tyrant was punished and the homeland purified, they, be, they, they having become, as it were, a ransom for the sin of our nation. And through the blood of those devout ones and their death, as an atoning sacrifice... Divine providence preserved Israel that previously had been mistreated. And so look at the language and the theology that's now put in to the martyrdom. What has the effect of people dying for God actually uh, um, become um, effectatious for? It's an atoning sacrifice. That's not in the Hebrew Bible, but it becomes part of the theology of the Second Temple period because of the Maccabean scenario, because of the oppression of the Greek world, because of us now having to rethink uh, the world instead of just saying so very simply, do something bad, get punished, now it's, Do something good get punished? And why? What effect could that possibly have? Then they began to say, this is Jewish thought. We haven't come to to Christians yet. We We haven't created our little monks out there in the desert. That the death of a righteous person for the sake of heaven could purify the land, and not only that, could become an atoning sacrifice. Human blood could become an atoning sacrifice. And so that thinking is part of the background of the Hebrew Bible, uh, sorry, of the New Testament. And so uh, I had to read some of these passages with my little Chabad friend and say, do you understand how the, the, the New Testament, where it's fitting in? that um that this is a jewish thought this is not a pagan greek thought nowhere in pagan theology in greek theology do you have a story of someone dying for the sins of the world as an atoning sacrifice okay they die yeah they die tragedies and uh and then and then you retell the glory of their tragic death of how valiantly they fought against Giants against the Kraken, against the Titans and things. But here you have simple children and a mother dying horrible deaths. And they die horrible deaths. They are flayed alive. They are boiled alive. They are chopped apart, all kinds of horrible things. Uh, And none of them renounce God. And so they are given honor, even more honor than than a military hero. And uh, and and their death becomes actually an atoning sacrifice. It has, it has more validity than than the animal sacrifices that are occurring in the temple. And so that's the background that you that that impacts um, uh, the world of uh, of the New Testament and uh, angelology as well. So in the Hebrew Bible, the uh, appearance of angels is a little bit limited. They're around. They're, they they show up with the early heroes. Um, with the patriarchs, there's angelic visitors in Genesis uh, and a little bit in Joshua and such, and then they disappear. There's a bit in Judges and stuff, but then they kind of disappear in the kings and, and Samuel and kings, but they reappear in the, in the second temple period. Angels become very, very active as agents of God running around on the planet, being able to influence this world, including giving uh, Judah uh, his magical sword um, which I don't think I've provided as a, as a story, unfortunately, but it is actually quite quite a good story. Um, oh, yes, it is. It's actually in 2 um, Maccabees. So in 2 Maccabees 15, it's actually where you get uh, uh, Jeremiah, the prophet of God, being sent from heaven um, to give Judah a magical sword. And that's in 2 Maccabees 15, uh, 12 to 16. Okay, so you end up with this really cool story of uh, the, the, the world to come actually influencing this world. So the New Testament knows these stories. The New Testament knows that the blood of an innocent person can purify the land and uh, and can become an atoning sacrifice. What the New Testament goes further in doing is that this unique atoning sacrifice has more weight and validity than simply just atoning for the land of Israel, for you know, the, the cruelty of the Romans or the cruelty of Hellenizers or anything. Uh, it has so much more weight. That it actually can atone for the sins of the entire world, and this is not a Greek invention. This is actually a very Jewish invention, and so again, the Jewish roots of the Christian faith uh, permeate every part uh, of our of our of our faith tradition. Um, where, where while we come, we might be uh, a part of a Jewish. Uh, Hellenized world of the Second Temple period, our faith tradition is actually very, very Jewish. All right. Uh, Alison, what did you say? Would we even know the story of the martyrs without the Maccabean victory? Um, Most likely not. History is written by victors uh, mostly, uh, not so much in the modern world. Um, And so the reason I think we have the Maccabean books, books one, two, three, and four, is because they actually won. And uh, and their story was was obviously very important because you had um, the intense pressure of Hellenism onto a Jewish world. Uh, there was intense persecution, and and uh, and they didn't know how to react uh, effectively. Some did not react violently, and they suffered, martyrdom. Some did react violently, and they succeeded. And so then they had to create theological uh, answers, or re- or. They interpreted theologically the events that are unfolded before them, both martyrdoms and messianic victory. And so at the time of Jesus, you had a very clear notion of what you expected messianic victories to look like. We had had heroes come and throw off the Greeks. So, of course, we were expecting Jesus to do the same thing. We got Romans coming around. They're doing the same thing as the Greeks. It's it's Hellenism 2 point zero. Let's have a go. Uh, and uh, uh, and 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 Yeshua has to tell them, I'm not that type of Messianic hero. That ended very poorly for you guys in the in the the first time around. I don't do that. Uh, I am I am essentially Mashiach ben Yosef. I am the suffering uh, servant who has come uh, at this time. Um, it was a bit of a shock to some Jewish people, I'm sure. Um, his second return, obviously, when you when you read some of the eschatological themes that are in Revelation, uh, uh, apply a more um, violent, victorious um, rulership as opposed to uh, the, the meek and mild Lamb. Um, Bernardo, did Herod dedicate the temple on Hanukkah? Also, that is a good question. I don't know when he dedicated his second temple because he technically didn't finish it, although it largely finished, but it continued to operate and be built until 66. One of the reasons for the um, revolt in the year 70 um, is because they stopped building the temple. You had all these Jews living in Jerusalem suddenly out of work. uh, And a lot of young fit men who are very good at building and lifting stone and, and swinging hammers all of a sudden, had nothing else to do, so may as well get those hammers and and hit a few Romans around the head. Um, yeah, was it? Wasn't it? Wasn't a very smart decision by the uh, uh, the Romans at that time. Uh, wasn't the temple after Babylon dedicated at Sukkot uh, the one that was the second time around when they when they came back to Zerubbabel's temple? Yes in uh, the, the building Zerubbabel's temple was, was also uh, dedicated on an eight-day festival, Sukkot. Jewish festivals are eight days. And so you, for those of you who follow uh, a Christian calendar, many of the Christian feasts are also eight days. And you wonder, oh, now where do we pick that idea up from? Well, lo and behold, we get it from our Jewish heritage that if you're going to celebrate anything that occurs that God does in history, you do it over eight days. And, uh, and so you end up with these, these time periods um, that occur around the eight-day period. Okay, so have I shocked anybody with um, purgatory? Have I shocked anybody with uh, Jewish people offering um, uh, sacrifices for dead people? Um, yes, and, uh, unleavened bread is only seven days, but when you add Passover, then the festival of unleavened bread is an eight-day festival. And that's why you also tack on Simchat Torah to make the festival uh, eight days as well. Okay. Um, All right. Another thing that I I, I forgot to uh, say at the beginning is that um, in the Second Temple period, there is no systematic theology. Uh, And so when you read many of the Second Temple period books, including the Bible, including the New Testament, they go all over the place. They start with one theme and they finish with another. And Paul is exactly the same. That is why Paul, in some of his epistles, will say things like, firstly, but he'll never, ever, ever get to secondly. Mm-hmm. Okay. He just starts talking and then all of a sudden he's gone on a segue and he is never coming back to his initial point. Okay. Um, that's because they don't do systematic theology, that's a later invention the uh, in the theological world. Uh, and so when you read the books of Maccabees, sometimes you do go, what is this? I don't understand where they're going with this. Um, I encourage you to read the book of Maccabees, but please don't try and think of it in a very systematic way. It's, not, it's certainly not that at all. What you do when you read the book of Maccabees, you look at um, the theological questions that they're asking. And what, what are they asking? They're asking, does martyrdom actually have any effect? Is it actually worth dying for the faith? How do I reconcile a good God who's in complete control but allowing bad things to happen to his heroes? Um, we, we discussed this theme, or I discussed this theme in my sermon last week. John the Baptist was the herald of the Messiah. He was infused with the Holy Spirit upon while he was in the womb of his mother at six months of age. He prepared the ground for the Messiah. And just because you have a calling from the Lord, just because you are full of the Holy Spirit, does not mean you're immortal and not going to get your head cut off. And so servants of God can still die. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a thing that we wrestle with just as the Maccabees did. And, uh, and so 2,000 years ago, they were wrestling with this stuff too. But along the way, they came up with and analyzed and prepared a lot of the, the, the groundwork for the theology that we now see in the New Testament. They went back into the, into the Hebrew Bible and they went to look for martyrs. So who's the first martyr in the Bible? Who's the first guy that spills his innocent blood for no reason whatsoever? He's done nothing wrong. In fact, he's done everything good. was it? Abel. Correct. Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel uh, offer sacrifices. No one told them to do that. There is no reason in Genesis for us to actually be offering animal sacrifices. We cannot eat animals as of yet. There is no Torah that says that you need to offer a sacrifice for a sin offering or anything. We haven't even decided what sin is. Yet we have Cain and Abel uh, bringing sacrifices to God. Abel does a good one. He selects the most purest of his flocks, the firstborn, you know, all that kind of stuff, and, and God looks at his hut. So he's doing well, and yet he is brutally murdered. And uh, and you go, okay, all right, fine. Well, um, obviously Cain was punished. What was Cain's punishment? Literally, what is Cain's punishment in Genesis? Exile.
0: Okay. Yeah.
1: They get, that's it. He doesn't get killed. He doesn't get stoned. He doesn't get put in prison. He uh, doesn't have to work, you know, 100 years slave labor to do his crimes against, uh, for the state. He's exiled. And he says, well, this is really bad. People are going to um, to kill me. So what does God say? on them. I'll put a mark on you. That'll protect you. Hang on. You've just done premeditated murder. Why is God protecting you? And so for Jewish people, they were going, hang on a second, we've got a problem here because he Cain gets married and he builds a city and he names it after his son. So things seem to work out okay for him. He ends up having a family. He ends up creating a city. He ends up becoming a kil- uh, capitalistic kingpin and he names the city after him. So, you doing quite well. Thanks. Poor old Abel, who did nothing wrong, well, His blood still crying from the earth. And so in the second temple period, based on the theology of the Maccabees, they look back into the Bible and they take these heroes and they begin to create stories about them uh, as how their blood, how their martyrdom actually has an atoning sacrifice. And so you end up with texts like the Testament of Abraham, uh, also written about a hundred years prior to Jesus. So, in the same in the same generations as the Maccabees, where it describes uh, in the um, in the redemption process, when you actually die and have to go stand before God, you have to go like like on a conveyor belt, and the first part of the conveyor belt you come to is Abel, and Abel is standing there, and Abel is still bleeding. And Abel takes his blood and he throws it on top of you. And if you're righteous, you can keep going. If you're not righteous, you're done. And then you. Uh, uh, and so when you get to the Book of Hebrews, it deliberately says it's not the blood of Abel, it's the blood of Yeshua. And you go, why that? Why? Why? Why are you saying that? And because they're knowing that in the second temple period, people were looking at these martyrs and saying, we'll use their blood as a turning sacrifice. We'll use this hero to save us from our from our sins. And then Yeshua says, actually, it's the Messiah who does this. Okay? Um, and uh, and, 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 and the, the, the blood of the Messiah speaks better than the blood of Abel, is, uh, is how it's written in, in, in the book of Hebrews. So parts of the New Testament like Paul talking about the baptism of the dead. It all comes in context. And the context uh, is the generation of the Maccabean Maccabean people. Um, They, because of their poor end and because of uh, their rather antagonistic attitude toward Pharisees and the proto-rabbis, the rabbinic people take it out of the Masoretic texts, but it's already in Septuagint, so they can't they can't stop that. So Greek Jews in the Jewish world, when Paul is running around uh, in Acts and he is quoting from Septuagint Greek, their Bible is including the Maccabees, while he himself never quotes from it. Um, uh, then uh, it, it although uh, Hebrews does Hebrews does mention um, that people were dying. Uh, uh, horrible deaths uh, in, in uh, chapter 11 and it's a um, the a verse is almost like a direct quote from 2 Maccabees so it looks like the writer of Hebrews is, is, is using Maccabean heroes in their list of heroes of um, to, to encourage us of a cloud of witnesses where in, in Hebrews he's describing how that world is influencing our world, so we don't pray to the dead. Actually, the dead are praying for us. Isn't that an interesting thought? You know, um, you know, it's uh, we have a cloud of witnesses. If the dead are in soul sleep, as some theologians will say, then they're not doing a very good job in Hebrews, are they? Because they're actually. Uh, how do dead people pray? Well, they probably just talk to God because they've got clean access. <laughs> um, I'm not 100 percent sure, uh, but uh, but but the you, you, in Revelation you you see martyred people calling and talking to God. Uh, they're actually in, in communication, uh, and in um, in the book of in the Gospels, Jesus references a rich man and a poor man who die. And they're not sleeping at all. In fact, they can communicate and even see each other and talk to each other. Uh, right. Yes. And so, um, and so, yes, Tom's right. So it's from the Maccabean principle that, that this world can influence the next world and the next world can communicate to God. And thus, you end up with the tradition of asking saints to pray for you. And people say, well, where do the Catholics get that idea from? Well, guys, they get it from the Second Temple period, late, late Second Temple period Jewish tradition, um, heavily based around the books of the Maccabees. Okay, so so let's not let's not throw stones at the Catholic Church and go, oh, where'd you come up with that pagan idea? Um, You may not agree with it. You may not want to do it yourself, but please, they have a a basis for what they're doing and for so instead believe right correct so instead of yelling at them the best thing to do is sit down and have a dialogue and say hey where are you getting this idea about let's talk about the uh, theology of uh, of what of where you get that from and uh, and stuff um, that would be um, my my uh, my advice okay are there any other questions uh, on anything that i've said so far mm. Any, any. Okay, so I'll give a bit of a summary and then see see how we go. So, in the late Second Temple period, the Jewish people had gained independence thanks to Cyrus. Because of world events, with the collapse of Alexander the Great's brief but magnanimous empire into four generals and their squabbling, the Jewish people came under the dominion of the Seleucid Empire. Slowly, they lost their independence as the Seleucids did their best to uh, fulfill Alexander's grand scheme of becoming cosmopolitan, creating a world people. That is, no borders, no distinctions. Everybody was the same. Does that sound like anything that's going on in our current world today? The answer is yes. Okay, and it always ends badly. Guys, yeah. that is never the way God intended for us to be. Anyway, back to the original story. Sorry, I digress. And, uh, and so the Greek world began to superimpose their belief system, their Hellenism, and they, they honestly thought it was a good thing, okay? Like, they're not evil people in and of themselves. They honestly thought that they were enlightened, they were better, they had had military victories, so obviously their gods were winning, you know, and, um, and you know, theologically you would have to go, well, you're right, your gods obviously beat my gods, didn't we? And, um, and so a new realm of theology now uh, begins to develop inside the Jewish tradition. How do we relate to uh, being under an occupier again when we're actually good now? We understand going into diaspora in the past because of our sins, but now we're actually good and we're suffering. So we have to redefine suffering. We have to give suffering a purpose. We have to give suffering a meaning. It's got to have some sort of of meaning. And it becomes to have such an important meaning, it begins to have an atoning quality to it. Um, Angels become incredibly involved in human affairs. Angels begin to appear all over the place. And so the angel can visit Mary and she's okay with it. Um, uh, angels begin to, you know, give people weapons and you know, they can actually, you know, give people food. And um, in the book of uh, the extra Greek versions of Daniel have uh, angels visiting Daniel while he's in prison. In fact, Habakkuk, the prophet, is sent to go talk to him and give him food while he's in the lion's den. So these kinds of uh, mystical in- things are going, are going on. And, uh, and within that tradition, uh, we have to counter um, a military victory we have to come to grips with nationalism without a God uh, or such a zealousness for God that then becomes quite um, unfortunately waylaid and it begins to corrupt the very temple we actually sought to rededicate and uh, and so we take away the the importance of nationalism and we bring about more importance on uh, human suffering and the and the and the the, the miraculous aspect of angelic, uh, of angelic warfare. And so in the Second Temple Period, what type of Messiah are we, are, are we looking for? Some people are looking for a militaristic leader, but there are others who understand that suffering produces perseverance, character, and hope, that actually suffering can actually bring the Redeemer. Um, and, uh, and, and, and that sort of idea that dying for God actually brings God closer to the planet, he will now act on your behalf because you died for him, not because you fought for him. Uh, and, uh, and that becomes quite a powerful little piece of theology that uh, is, in, is in the New Testament. So much so it's turn the other cheek, don't resist, don't fight. You know, you can't don't you don't beat people with, with weapons. I've got enough angels to come and guard me if I want, but that's not the way we, we wage our warfare. And uh and that sort of theology is 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 very much a part of the New Testament, very much part of uh, um the Jesus movement, very much a part of us. And uh and it gives us some some understanding in our current world, right? When we look around our current world, we say, Okay, well, why are all these bad things happening to good people? and and how does God still sit on the throne? And how does any of this uh, bring the redemption uh, uh, closer? And so, um, all right. So the question here, Alison, why is the book of Maccabees not accepted in the canon of scripture? It is, just not in yours. Um, so uh, the uh, here's where we get controversial. If I haven't gotten controversial enough, I'm really sorry. Time to get controversial. Um, I know, uh, look, I'm a Protestant, uh, I'm an Anglican, which means I swore to preach the um, the Bible as the Protestants have received it. The Anglican canon also actually does include the Apocrypha, just so everybody knows. It is in the lectionary and it is to be read. However, when you read it, you don't say this is the word of the Lord, you just say this is a reading. You have a distinction, but it is still read. Um, <clears throat> there are other... Denominations where um, these books are in in canon, in various levels of canonicity. Um, uh, let's just say this, <clears throat> and I've heard you, you know I've said it before, uh, for those who have studied with with us on on Wednesdays. Your faith's not in your Bible. Your faith is in the risen Messiah. So whether you have okay. a Bible or not. You can believe Amen. that Jesus rose from the dead because that's exactly Amen. what the apostles did. They didn't have a Bible. Notice that Jesus didn't have a Bible. Amen. When Jesus was on the planet, they had not yet figured out what books were in the Bible or what weren't, were not in the Bible. And yet they used the term, the scriptures say. What scriptures? You haven't given me a list of your scriptures. As if a list of scriptures is important. And so what happens is, Through history, the list of scriptures became incredibly important. We had to figure out which books were in and which books were out, and that took us hundreds of years. And we didn't agree. (laughs) There are people who have different books in their Bible, and that's okay. Uh, And if we happen to say, well, our Bible's inspired and everybody else's Bible is not inspired, all right, then the next question we might ask is um, if having the correct 66 books in the bible is so important then how come the holy spirit who can create the universe resurrect people from the dead prophesy through prophets can't figure out how to get humans to have 66 six books in the Bible for 1,500 years after Jesus until a German monk comes along. If that's the way we think, then probably best to get a different Holy Spirit because this one somehow forgot how to talk to people. <laughs> the, it's, it's your faith is not in your Bible. Your faith is in the risen Messiah. And so um, here we are celebrating okay. Hanukkah. Yet Hanukkah is not in the Bible. I mean, it is in some other people's Bibles. And it is a great story. It is a story where a group of priests stood up to a world power and said, No, we're not going to take your gods. We will fight for the living God. And he won. And God blessed them. And that's the miracle. Later on, they throw they throw a miracle of oil in there because they really really don't like the actual Maccabean people. Um, but the book of Maccabees brings in some fantastic theology that appears in the New Testament, and it really gives the New Testament goes further. Like Jesus does not sit with the theology of the New, of the Maccabees and say, yeah, they're they're the they're the bees knees. Let's all do what they do. He actually lives in that world and says, actually, it's me. I'm the atoning sacrifice that can actually cover for the sins of the world. Uh, my followers will suffer, but in that suffering, they will bring on the redemption. And, uh, and uh, my followers turn the other cheek. And my followers, he's, a, he's very much in, in, in that world, very much. And, uh, and all of that is, a, is actually a, a joy and, and a delight for us who are followers of the Messiah. Um, but a quick to thought, Aaron. That.
0: Too real quick, Aaron, is that Jesus would have had all of the Torah, right? Like so, the Pentateuch and then like the Psalms and Isaiah, because he read Isaiah in the correct. In, so they their Bible would have been the Jewish, like the Old Testament, right?
1: Um, the the new the <laughs> Old Testament as the as we know it is only finalized hundreds of years after Jesus. It's where they. So they so for example, they they finally decide hundreds of years after Yeshua not to include the wisdom of Ben Sirah. Yet the wisdom of Ben Sirah is quoted almost verbatim in all of James chapter two. Mm-hmm. Uh, so where where if you get the book of the wisdom of Ben Sirah chapter two and you get James chapter two and you put them side by side, you go, these are these are exact. James is copying it. We, we quote the book of Enoch. We argue against the testament of, of, uh, of Abraham. So these books are well known and being read and even being quoted. Um, so, but they're not called Bible or not Bible.
0: No, but when Jesus referred to scriptures, like he was talking Isaiah and Psalms he quoted
1: from. Yes. I understand what you're saying, but there's not a list of what scripture is
0: because no, the but list what did he have at that time like he would have had they have all, all of this all of the yes old testament sorry
1: <laughs> they have all of the they have all of the of the septuagint and more okay so so for example the septuagint does not have enoch in it right but the book of jude does quote it and the, and so so you have other books, the, the books are all floating around. But, and so when, when we talk about scripture, you what is the person hearing when you say the word scripture? I know it's hard because we're, we're 2,000 years removed from the event. And, and so what I'm, what I'm not trying to say is everybody quickly run out and throw Enoch in your Bible. What I'm <laughs> trying to say is if you happen to meet an Ethiopian who does have Enoch in his Bible, that doesn't make him a bad Christian. It doesn't make him not a follower of Yeshua. In fact, he loves Yeshua. That's why he's reading Enoch in his Bible. All right. So it's, uh, it's, it's uh, yes, these scrolls are individual scrolls. Bernardo is correct. They, they have a collection of individual scrolls, and each community does not have the same number of scrolls as everybody else. What I mean is you would go to one synagogue and they might have the Torah, they might have the Psalms and they might have three of the prophets, but they don't have all the others because they're not rich enough. So you go to another, another synagogue and they've got the Torah, the Psalms and six of the prophets. Okay, you don't have a collection like everybody and they're swapping and they're copying and they're sending stuff out and it takes and they're debating still. They're still debating. Is Ecclesiastes in the Bible? Is Job still in the Bible? Is the Song of Songs still in the Bible? And that that conversation goes for hundreds, hundreds of years. A couple
0: hundred. eh? The canon was formed in like kind of the canon of scripture that we have now was formed in what, 200 something?
1: Hebrew Bible, yes. New Testament comes a bit later. For the early, early canons of the New Testament, the early canons include the Didache, the Shepherd of Hermes, and 1st Clement. So the first lists of the Bible, like if we were believers in Yeshua, 200 years after Yeshua, our Bible looked a little different. Yeah. Like the, the books we were reading and discussing were, were different. And, and some of us would have been, would have been reading the Maccabees as part of it and going, wow, aren't these guys great? Or doesn't that help us in our, in our theology? Anyway, going back to the, the, the summary, I've now kind of forgotten where I was. Okay, so the world that, um, that uh, Jesus is in, is, um, he is he is born into a world where the Maccabees are still thought of as heroes. We name our children after them. Um, we envisage some sort of messianic leader to come like them. We understand that there are some flaws in the system. We understand the temple is corrupt. Thanks to them, um, uh, we are we are now relating to um, Galileans as almost like uh, they're half Jews. They're a different type of Jew. Um, and, and and can anything good come from the north? I mean, seriously, they're not. It's not really the the, the, the purity as there was as, as that we have down south. Um, we have gone across the Jordan and, and subjugated those people and turned them all into, into good little Jews, who are now actually our kings. Well, that didn't work out so well. Uh, we have unfortunately engaged in civil war, uh, as humans are wont to do, and invited the Romans. We're now under occupation again. Um we have a very well-developed school system, thanks to the Greeks. We have a well-developed uh, system of rabbis and, and students, thanks to the Greeks. We've got a well-developed piece of architecture. We're getting very good at it, thanks to the Greeks. And, uh, and so into this world uh, also comes our theology of martyrdom, uh, of angeology, uh, of the ability to affect the world to come and for the world to come to affect this world. They honestly believed that the two worlds were very close they were very, very close. Um, and so that's the world of the New Testament. And, and, and it sits um, uh, on, on, a, on a platform that comes from the Maccabean period, comes from the story of Hanukkah. Hanukkah is a great story. And, and, and it was actually included in the Catholic Church's uh, calendar as celebrated as a holiday until the year 1506. And I do not know the reason why they took it out, but it was there. The Catholic Church celebrated Hanukkah as a holiday. In fact, all of the Maccabees, including the mother and her seven sons, are saints in the Catholic Church, and they have a special day that you read their story and remember them in the in the uh, in, in, in the in the Catholic tradition. Uh, uh, I can't tell you why they they finished. I, I, don't, I don't don't. I don't know the reason why anyway okay brothers and sisters that's uh, our, our lecture um, I hope you enjoyed the little bit on the Maccabees um, uh, uh, if you still want to believe that there was a, a miracle of oil okay um, but that really takes away from the real story just so you know and if there if there was a miracle of oil you probably should then put the Maccabees in your Bible if God actually really did that don't you think you should probably record it? No, seriously, if God actually did something amazing, why would you not record it? Why would you not put it in your Bible?
0: Yeah, but John said there's too many, too many things that Jesus did to even record it. <laughs>
1: yes, but that's hundreds of years after the Maccabees. <laughs> nice try, Sharon. I love it. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. All right, thank you very much. Uh, next week, we continue um, with deuteronomy twenty three which is uh, this is not going to be my favorite chapter okay uh, uh, okay for those of you who have read ahead, you know what i 'm talking about For those of you who haven 't read ahead it 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 's got stuff like uh, priests who who have become castrated can 't be priests. But how does that have some <laughs> theological underpinning for me now okay but anyway it's there so we will wrestle with with what god is is teaching his people and how that is to reflect his character and and then again by extension how that affects us as images of the living god uh to to a world to a world right now all right guys
0: thank you for listening if you've been blessed by this teaching let us know by leaving a comment on our facebook page on soundcloud or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.